Well, good morning to you. Welcome to you who are here and anyone who's watching online. Hello, hello. Uh, we are in our final week of our series that we've called In Good Company. And next week, Ryan's going to be kicking off a three-week series that we're calling Unplugged. We're going to be dealing with real relationships in a digital world. We're looking forward to that. But today, I want to talk a little bit. Well, let's start out a little bit by talking about fear. Fear. Um, I don't know about you guys, I have a lot of irrational fears. We won't go into any of those. Um, whatever someone told you, just keep that to yourselves this morning. We're not going to expose anyone. Um, but I, in preparing for today, I, was, I came across an article. Actually, it was a website that had the, the most exhaustive list of like, every kind of fear that there is. And I'm talking there's hundreds. Okay, so I'm just going to read through about 250 of them. I want you guys to feel like, okay, no, um, there's so many phobias out there. Okay, so there's a couple, and then some of them are, you know, you might be well aware of, uh, but maybe you don't know the actual official name. But, uh, and my pronunciation on these might be way off, but don't, don't worry about it. Uh, Atikophobia, the fear, fear of failure, okay? Algophobia, the fear of pain. I think we got that one. Here's the popular one. Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Okay, P.S., when somebody says, out of sight, out of mind, okay, that's great and all, but if that does not apply when you see a spider in your room and then it gets away from you. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind does not apply in that situation. Okay, we got a bunch of random ones too. We've got selenophobia, which is the fear of the moon. Okay, I can understand the fear of getting mooned, but <laughs> the, I mean, the, the fear of the moon, that's, that's a little ridiculous. Uh, how about this one, allurophobia, which is the fear of cats. Meow. Anyone freak out? Uh, dentophobia, the fear of dentists. Curtis, stay. You stay right there. Uh, how about this one? Nomophobia, fear of being without a mobile phone or without a signal on your phone. Okay, okay, we're good. Uh, pogonophobia, fear of beards. I did. I shaved yesterday just in case that would come up. And lastly, this is my favorite. It's called homilophobia, which is the fear of sermons. <laughs> Hopefully everyone is fine about that. No, it's crazy, though, looking through this list as you're going on and you're scrolling and scrolling how many different fears there are. I swear, there's a fear for everything in life. Everything has a, a certain kind of phobia. There's fears of all kinds. And so, you know, fear is something that all of us deal with at some level. All of us deal with some kind of fear Fear of all kinds, whether how irrational it might be or how serious it is, fear is a part of life for all of us. And so my assumption this morning as we get going here is my assumption is that there is something that you fear. There's probably a lot of different things, but the assumption is that fear is a part of your life and there's something that you fear. And so maybe right now, this morning, you are currently in the midst of a, a fear and you're, you're wondering, I, do I even have what it takes to make it through this? Maybe what you're experiencing right now, the, the fear that you're experiencing, you don't even know if you have the courage to continue. Or maybe what you have is, is a, maybe not, it's not happening now, but what your fear is, is the fear of the future. It's a future fear. You know, maybe it's something to do with our, your job or your career. You have no idea like what's happening right now. You have no idea what's gonna, what's gonna, what it's gonna look like in three months four months. You don't know what it's going to look like. Maybe it's something with your health or the health of a loved one, and you're wondering what in the world is life going to even look like a year from now? What is it going to be like? Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe 
For, for some of you who are single, maybe it's, there's that fear of being alone. Am I ever gonna meet that right person? There's a fear of being alone. Or maybe on the other side of that coin, maybe it's a fear of getting into a relationship, fear of being known because I might get hurt. Or maybe your marriage right now is going through the ringer and you have no idea what life is gonna look like on the other side of this. What's the future even gonna look like? Or kids, I mean, come on, what about kids? All of the fears that come out with kids, uh, are they going to be okay? What's going to happen? Are, you know, are we going to raise them right? I was just uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, some neighbors of mine came over and they began to share the story of uh, this traumatic event that happened with their kids. And as they were sharing the story, I was listening to it and I just felt the, it activating all of my own fear about our kid. It's just fear and then it activates my fear and just a big fear fest. So whether it's something you're experiencing right now in this moment, or maybe it's something that's a future fear, we all need courage. We all need confidence, don't, do we not? No matter where you're at this morning, I'm willing to bet that you could use more courage, that you could use more confidence as you step into and you face the fears, the difficulties that life brings your way. And the question is, is where are we going to find it? Yes, I need, I need courage, I need confidence, but where are we going to find it? And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story that explains the source of where courage and confidence come from. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Judges chapter 6? You might even have it bookmarked from last week. We're back in Judges chapter 6, and I hope that nobody here deals with bibliophobia, which is the fear of books. So open to Judges chapter 6. You can flip or tap your way there. And while you're turning there, uh, yeah, we're going to look at a story of a guy who was really far from courageous. You would think, oh, we need to find out where courage comes from. So let's find the story of a hero. Let's find the story of someone who was strong, who exhibited such courage. We're actually looking at a story today of a guy who was far from courageous. He had a serious confidence deficit. He was filled with fear. He's not really the model of what you would expect your hero type to be. He's not this Jack Bauer type of guy. You know, he's, he's a guy filled with fear, and he doesn't fit the profile of a hero, but check it out. He is someone who God made courageous. God made him courageous. And so this story that we're going to look at today is going to show us really where the source of our confidence really lies. So look with me at Judges chapter 6. We're going to be reading through the story uh, starting with verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, with judges, there's this big cycle going on of, of rebellion and repression and then re rescue and restoration. And they, they disobey God again. It just cycles back and forth, back and forth. And so this is just another one of those cycles that follows. And so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and, and the caves and the strongholds. For it, was when, for it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up against them with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts in number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. 
So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now, now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he, brought, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So the first thing that we see happening here in the story is things ain't going very well in Israel. Things are not going well. The, Israel, are, they are experiencing some desperate times. They are in dire straits. And you see, every year for seven years, Midian, this other nation, would come in. They would swoop in right around harvest time. And they would just plunder all of the crops and take all the animals and just leave Israel as a wasteland. Every year for seven years. I mean, we know what that is like, don't we? We know like every year, I mean, it's what the IRS does to you. Every year, it's, we call that the fear of taxes. And so the, the destruction that they would lay to Israel was so great, it was described as it was like a plague of locusts sweeping over land. And so Israel is helpless. They are helpless to resist the invaders. And they literally, because of this, they, would, they took to the hills and made for themselves homes in the rocks and in the caves. Really, what we see here is depicted as a life of fear. They're living a life of fear. And I, I know that experiencing this, this desperation would make any of us wonder, where in the world is our God? God, why aren't we experiencing you? Where are you? Where is your power? Where is your presence? Where are all the, the things that we've heard about who you are? Wait, where are you now? God, where are you? These these are the kinds of questions that arise and, and, and surface during desperate situations. So Israel, they cry out to God, and it's so interesting. Look at verse 8. Look at God's response to this. He says, what does he send them? He hears the cry, and he sends them a prophet. A prophet? A prophet. Are you kidding me? I mean, okay, so this would be like you getting in a bad car accident and you're able to get to your phone, you're, just, you're mangled in the car, you get to your phone, you, you call 911, and you're like, okay, send help, send help, I need help, okay. And they're like, okay, we got you covered, stay, stay there. Uh, we're going to email you a pamphlet on safe driving. Like, I don't need an email on safe driving, I need help. I need rescue. And that's what Israel is saying, that we need help, we need rescue, we don't need a prophet, we don't need a sermon. We need a, a rescuer and a deliverer. And the question is, why... This response is so interesting. What is it showing us? It's huge. If we understand that God here, by sending a prophet, it is telling us that he is interested in much more than just mere situational relief. You see, the real issue that needed to be addressed here with Israel wasn't first and foremost what was going on on the outside with their circumstances. It was what was going on on the inside, namely with their heart. See, the real, yeah, the real issue wasn't their circumstance. It was their heart. Israel had wandered. They, they'd wandered away from the Lord. They had turned to the other gods of the Midianites, of the Amorites. They had not listened to God. They had not obeyed. And it's very interesting. In verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian. 
for seven years. And it's important to see from the get-go here is that this whole response, but everything that's going to follow, this entire story and what we're going to see and how it all unfolds, what we see here is their situation and their circumstance is not the result of God turning his back on his people. No, it's the, the result is that it, because of their turning hit their back on him, what we see here is a loving God pursuing them. See, over and over in the story of God, we see that God is committed to our rescue. And as a part of the rescue, he's committed to our rescue and as a part of it, hear this, is God will lovingly allow us to experience the consequences of our sins so that we realize our need for him. You see, desperation oftentimes precedes deliverance. And so the circumstances that Israel, that they find themselves in, is not the result of God turning his back on them. It's because they turned their back on him. And everything that is about to follow is the story of God pursuing them back. He wants their heart. And he wants to wake them up. And to wake them up, he graciously allows them to experience desperation as the end result of their walking away from him. So it'd be easy to look at this and look at these circumstances and, and conclude that God doesn't care. But what we see here is that God does care and we learn that Israel's circumstances are being used by God to get their attention, to wake them up, to turn their hearts back to him. So God is, he's after much, much more than just situational relief. And I think it's worth asking the question here. Not all of our suffering is a punishment from God, not at all. There are, being, there are going to be times in life where we will suffer like Christ. And we don't understand the reasons behind that, but there are real consequences from our hearts wandering away from God. And it is out of his love that he pursues us and allows us to experience the, the futility of life apart from him. So he wants their hearts, not just situational relief. So he responds by sending them a prophet with a sermon. Let's continue on here. Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah and said to Gideon, you get a car. You get, wait, that's a different Oprah. Well, he sat, un, sat under the oak that was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles, which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up out of, from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in the strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. And I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. And before we jump into that and unpack all of that, I want to know this. Like, what happened to the rest of the sermon? What happened to the sermon that the prophet was giving? Like, well, how did the people respond? And the, the answer really is we don't know. All we see is that God, he interrupted the sermon with his own response. And I think this is actually telling us something very important in our relationship with God. The, here, this is that God is not waiting for our response. God isn't waiting for us to clean ourselves up. 
He's not waiting for us to fix ourselves. Long before we ever respond to him, he's already been at work initiating our salvation. And this is good news. You see, we didn't climb our way back up to God. No, he came down to us. It's not like we worked really, really hard and we cleaned ourselves up and we're, we want to, God, I want to convince you that I'm serious about you. And I'm going to convince you that you need to be serious about me. No, no, no. God is the one who initiated this whole thing. And he didn't do it when we were at our best. He did it when we were at our worst. Romans 5 eight says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to climb our, uh, climb our way back to him. He descends. He comes down to us. And this is so cool because you see the prophet came to Israel with a sermon. But meanwhile, God was already working out and in initiating our salvation. In the same way that God, he has a message for you today. He has a sermon for you today. But know this, he's already been at work and he's already provided everything that you need for salvation, for redemption and restoration. So we don't need to work to get better. We don't need to wait to improve. God has already initiated and provided our rescue in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And salvation, because of that salvation is not something that we achieve, salvation is something that we receive. It's not about trying. It's about trusting. I just love that. I love that Gideon seems somewhat unaware of the reasons behind why the situation is the way it is, which almost tells me that he's, God's doing, he's, he's meeting Gideon in the very same moment that this other response is happening. I love that. So let's look at God's rescue plan. Really, this rescue plan, as we'll, as we'll find out and see, is kind of ridiculous. Not going to lie, a little ridiculous. But there's three things. The first thing, what we see is that there's an unlikely leader. I mean, right away, we meet Gideon, and this guy, you got to be thinking, like, this is not the hero that I you know, would come to expect to someone who, who's going to deliver Israel, is going to do all of this. He's the unlikely guy. He's the unlikely guy. I mean, look at where he is when we find him. We're introduced to him as this guy. He's threshing wheat in the wine press. And for those of you who haven't threshed wheat recently, I'm just going to give you a little refresher, a little reminder. I mean, threshing wheat was something that was, it required wind. It required being outdoors. It required being outside. And so like what you would do is you have the basket of wheat. You would, you know, throw some wheat up in the air. The wind would blow the chaff away. And what would fall down would be the good grain. And so this is something that requires wind and being outside and a breeze. And so Gideon is in a wine press, which really is, it's a hole. It's a pit. He's, he's hanging out. This would be the equivalent of trying to fly a kite in the basement. I mean, like, what are you doing trying to fly a kite in the basement? It's, it's completely futile. And he's doing this because he is afraid of the Midianites. And so this is, this is the unlikely leader. I mean, he's no hero He's hiding in fear. And what, what makes it all the more ironic is what the angel of the Lord says to him. It says, the angel says, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Go in this might of yours and save Israel. And I think it, this is where you would want to cue the laugh track. <laughs> like, ha, ah, that's funny, valiant warrior. I mean, there was probably, I mean, it just seems so sarcastic, so ironic. I mean, even Gideon seems to think that God has chosen the wrong person. He's like, wait, 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 me? We've already seen he's, he's filled with fear, not courage. He has all these doubts. He has a lot of confusion about God's goodness. He's filled with insecurity. I mean, he says, I come from the weakest clan in this tribe. I am the least of my father's house. He's looking to all of his own, his own self 
He's like, this does not make sense. It doesn't add up. I don't possess those raw goods. I don't fit the profile. Gideon is convinced, God, you have the wrong address. I mean, how many of us can relate to Gideon in those moments? If we're being honest with ourselves, living in fear, filled with doubts, filled with confusion about, I can't make sense of what's going on around me. Filled with insecurities. I mean, looking around and, and at our circumstances and our situations and our world and all the things that are going on, like as we turn on the news and just the things that we, we in, our own, in our own circles, there's a, there's a lot of evidence to make us think, God, where are you? Where is your goodness? Where is your power? Where's your presence? Why don't I feel that? Why don't I sense that? Where, where are you and what are you doing? And I love the way that the, the angel of the Lord responds. Because his response to Gideon here in this moment is the very same response that you and I get today, right here, right now. And it is five significant words that this angel of the Lord gives. His response is, I will be with you. I will be with you. And friends, that is the true source of our courage of our confidence, our ultimate hope as we face difficulty, as we experience fear in life. It's not our ultimate hope and our confidence is not anchored in our ability, our courage, our strength. It's based on this one thing. It's God's promise that I will be with you. And I love that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Jesus, his, he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus came, he was called Emmanuel, and at the very end of his, of his life, as he, as he goes, returns to heaven, he says, I will be with you always. Well, where are you going? Where are you going? I will be, you're going to be with us. And he sends his spirit, not to come and go, but to move in, to dwell within, inside the hearts of his people. We've been sealed. His promise to always be with us, it's, full, it's fulfilled in his spirit as with us. And so you and I have hope not because of what's inside, but because of who is inside. So God says to Gideon, he says, I will be with you, and he calls him a valiant warrior. And just a quick note on this, God's words to, to Gideon here in this moment, he calls him a valiant warrior long before Gideon ever takes a step, long before Gideon ever does anything. God says to him, you're a valiant warrior, and this is way before any, any battle happens, anything happens. God shows up, meets him in the pit, in his hole, in his fear, and he speaks identity over him. Here's who you are. You see, God doesn't relate to Gideon based on what Gideon is doing in that moment. He, he relates to Gideon based on what he's going to make out of him, what he's going to become. And God doesn't do that to us either. He comes to us as, not as we are, but as what he intends to make us in Christ. And what's so cool is that God's words, words are powerful. Words are incredibly powerful. God's words are the most powerful. His word he spoke all of creation into existence. His words have the power to create. His word has the power to define. And here's the thing, it is inescapable. You and I, all of us, at all times are living out an identity. 
It's inescapable. It's what we do. We live out what we believe to be most true about ourselves. And the question is, is who has defined that for you? Whose word has had the power to define you? Whose word are you going to believe? Whose words have had had the power over you? What words have been spoken over you throughout your life? You know, we carry, with it, carry all of the words and wounds from the past. We carry those with us. But who, whose words have you allowed to define you? How do you define yourself? Maybe you think of yourself as unlovable, unacceptable. Maybe you think of yourself as not enough. Maybe you think of yourself as unwanted. But what words do you speak over yourself and my hope and prayer for all of us, myself included, is that, that today we would hear the words that God speaks over us in Christ and his words over us that, that create us and define us, that we are loved, we are accepted, we are righteous, we are holy. God looks at us and says, mine, you're mine. May God's words define how you see you. So God, he shows up to a fearful and weak man hiding in a hole, and he says, I will be with you, O valiant warrior. See, Gideon is not chosen by God because he's a courageous. He was made courageous because he was chosen by God. It's a big difference. So let's get back to the story. So far, we've seen God's rescue plan. It includes a very unlikely leader. Gideon is very unlikely. He doesn't fit the, the, the profile. But now check out this unimpressive army. The Midianites, it's harvest season, so the Midianites are cruising back. They're setting up camp. They're getting ready to do their thing, to plunder. And so Gideon, he's ready to go, and he rallies everybody to war. And guess what? He, he's able to get together 32,000 people. That's an incredible amount of people, but it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the opposition. 32,000, okay, maybe this, okay, sweet. If everyone kills like, I don't know, 200 people, we, we'll be good. Okay, okay. Uh, Yeah, so this might be able to happen. Okay, sweet. But look at the way that God responds here. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, "Uh, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead, So 22,000 people left. 22,000 people returned home and only 10,000 remained. Okay, this is looking really, really uh, different. Uh, I think we're good. Okay, we can do it. Now you kill 400, you kill, okay, working out all the numbers, but God's not done. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it will, it shall be, that he of whom I say to you, this one will go with you, then he shall go with you. But everyone, but everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels down to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all of the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men 
who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands so that all the other people go, each man to his home. I mean, this just seems insane. What in the world is happening? I mean, does God not see the, uh, the opposing army? Does he not know? Like, look at what we are up against. 300 men and we're doing drinking tests and what, what, what in the world is going on here? It seems so arbitrary. And this is just the way that God does things. I mean, he doesn't do things like, like the way that we choose our, you know, our NFL, our fantasy football teams. Or he doesn't, he doesn't do things the way that we choose uh, dodgeball teams. You know, the, the, he doesn't go around saying, okay, you're strong, you got a good arm, you're great, okay, I like your numbers, your stats. He's looking for the strong, the bold, the, the big, the brave. He's, he does it completely backwards. He does it completely opposite. Throughout Scripture, the pattern that we see is that God, uh, him, God choosing not the strong and the courageous, but he chooses fearful and weak people so that he can show off his strength, his glory, his power. By shrinking Gideon's army, God is essentially saying, it's important for you to see that I am with you. I want you to see that I am with you. And I'm going to put your army in a situation where there's going to be absolutely no possible way for them to think that they deserve the credit for this. And so, the rescue plan so far, we've got an unlikely leader, an unimpressive army, 300 men. Now, check out this unheard of battle plan. Verse 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, okay, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all, all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay? Ready, break. That's the plan. I mean, have you ever been in those meetings with people and they, they throw out, I got an idea, and they throw out an idea, and you're like, that's literally the worst idea ever. But you feel like you, feel like you have to affirm them. You're like, that, dude, okay, that's great. I like, I like where you're going with that. Okay, any other ideas here? Can we, can we, it, it, this is crazy. I mean, what were these guys thinking as this was going on? It just was ludicrous. I mean, imagine sitting, okay, you want me to do the trumpet? Okay, trumpet, okay, and a jar, okay, and a, and a pitcher, with a, a, a torch. Okay, cool, all right, all right. What the heck are you talking about? What's going on? This is absolutely insane. I mean, last time I checked, a trumpet wasn't lethal. <laughs> Unless you have a neighbor who's learning to play trumpet, I mean, that can get a little lethal. But where are the swords? Where are the shields? I mean, the stuff that we were trained with. You know, is this some kind of joke? It seems ridiculous, but here's the deal. It being ridiculous was the point. God, if God is going to bring victory through this unimpressive army led by an unlikely guy using nothing but a trumpet, a jar, torches, and some yelling, then <laughs> he better show up and do something miraculous because if he does not, we are completely, we're gone. We're toast. It's over. And so we see that night, they, they in, under the cloak of darkness, they sneak out and they surround Midian, these 300 guys. They surround the enemy. And then on, on cue, they all blow their trumpets. 
they smash the jars and they have the torches and they yell, for the, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. You gotta imagine just in all of that darkness, all of the sudden, the sudden noise and the sudden light that shines all around. I mean, it causes Midian to panic. All of a sudden, chaos breaks out. And even though Israel stands there and they have no weapons, they have no weapons and they haven't even taken a step, they haven't done anything, all of Midian is now in complete confusion and then they start slaying one another. The end. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's crazy and awesome. But they didn't, they didn't do anything. All of the, the light that just all of a sudden they're surrounded by light and chaos and they start slaying one another. Then the guys, they, they don't, they're just killing each other. They don't know who's a Midianite and who's not. And then they just start running and Israel pursues them and finishes it. You see, the, the battle was won. And there's no doubt about who's responsible for this. It wasn't this unlikely leader with this impressive resume. It wasn't that. It wasn't this unimpressive army with 300 men. It wasn't the unheard of battle plan. I mean, it was torches, jars, and yelling, and, and the, it wasn't that. You know, for, the, for them to win the battle, it had to be the power. It had to be the presence of God. It, this was all about God getting the glory and him turning his people's hearts back to him. You see, God chose Gideon not because Gideon was strong, but because he was weak. And it was through Gideon's weakness that God was able to display his strength. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. Well, many years later, another deliverer would come. And this deliverer would come and fight another battle, not against a, another powerful nation, but against an even greater enemy, the penalty and the power of sin. And this battle, too, had the most un heard of battle plan. This deliverer that would come, he would win by losing. And unlike Gideon who had 300 men with them, this deliverer would be completely alone. He would willingly become weak and give his life as a substitute, taking on himself the punishment that we deserved. And then he would be buried and sealed in this tomb in darkness all, all hope seemed lost and his people would retreat into hiding. And then three days later, when the enemy thought it had won, meanwhile, the enemy was only being surrounded and sudden light broke through the darkness and sin's power was shattered. And with a shout of triumph, Jesus, the true deliverer, he emerges alive. He emerges victorious, crushing our enemy. And because of his victory, we are given everything that we need in order to face our, the fears, in order to face the difficulties of this life. Because of what he has done. I invite the band up. And you know, I want to close with this. Is right before... Gideon went off to war. Gideon needed some convincing. He needed some serious convincing. He's like, God said, I, I will be with you. And Gideon's, okay, I hear what you're saying. I, you're going to be with me, but I need some convincing. I need you to prove it. 
And so Gideon, there's a story, like he takes this small little fleece. He said, okay, God, if you're with me, I'm going to put this fleece on the ground. And if you are with me, as you say you are, then tomorrow morning when I come back, what I'm going to find is that all of the ground around here is going to be completely dry and this fleece is going to be filled with dew. And sure enough, the next morning he comes back and it's exactly how it is. The ground is dry. The the fleece, he was able to wring it out. It was completely soaked with dew. And then he's like, okay, okay, dude, that's awesome. Okay, ah, don't be mad, don't be mad. I need one more sign. I need one more sign, please, please, please. Okay, that could have happened naturally. I don't know, science. Um, But that might have happened. I need you to do it the other way around. So what I want to do is like when, tomorrow when I come out, I want the whole ground to be wet and then the fleece to be completely dry. Can you do that? Then I will know that you are with me. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The next day he comes back, ground is soaked with dew, fleece is completely dry. I love that God was patient with him. Gideon needed a sign. He needed signs. Here's the thing. You and I, we need signs as well. You and I need a sign. God, how do we know that you are with us? How do we know? And guess what? We have been given the ultimate sign. You see, we don't just have a small little piece of fleece. We have the full lamb of God who hung on a cross. And that's not it. That's just, you know, anybody can die, right? We have, a, we have another sign too, the ultimate sign of an empty tomb, an empty tomb, an empty grave to confirm God's promise of rescue, of redemption, of resurrection life. And so if you're feeling weak this morning, if you're experiencing fear, you're in good company. You're in great company. And we don't have to look to or for any other sign. We have Jesus. And the promise that Jesus has for us is this, I will be with you. I will be with you. God, we thank you. Though we don't feel or experience or observe at times your presence, Lord, we know that your word is trustworthy. We can stand on it. We can build on it. You are a promise maker. You are a promise keeper. God, you know that we are weak people and you don't roll your eyes at us until we get our lives figured out and straightened up. And, but you come to us in our weakness, in our hole, in our fear. You speak identity over us and you promise that you are with us. So God, wherever we are at this morning, experiencing those fears, experiencing those difficulties, whether they're things that we are currently in the midst of or things in the future. God, may we be comforted, be reminded that you are with us and you're not going to leave us.